This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. David, before we start our podcast, do you know what Feedspot is? Well, I didn't know until I read an email we'd received about Feedspot, which goes about discovering and ranking popular blogs and podcasts like ours. And do you know what they ranked us as? Tell me, Jen. Absolutely. Well, we ranked one of the top 35 in Australia. So we better stop talking and let you listen. Get on with the show. Thanks, Jan. I'm sure you know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a mad scientist living in a city, changing his personality so drastically. Could this ever happen in country Australia? Lynn Yarwood has created such a character in The Silent Listener. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Jan. Let's get the good side of George Henderson. How is he revered in the small rural town that he's living in? George Henderson is a man very widely loved for many deeds that he does with his neighbours in the church and in the community. And he is very good at convincing everybody that he is, in fact, a person worthy of their admiration and devotion. Well, in 1983, George Henderson is over 70 years old and the book starts with the line, the moment he dies, the room explodes with life. Not grief, but life. Who experienced this? This is his daughter, Joy, one of two daughters that he had with his wife, Gwen. And Joy has come home back to the farm where she grew up to nurse him as he approaches death. And I think it's fair to say that she's relieved that he has finally died. Well, the book jumps between three time frames, 1940s, 1960s and 1980s. What's happening in the 1940s? In the 1940s, George Henderson and his wife Gwen meet at a dance. They go to live on a farm in a very remote part of southeastern Victoria where it's wet and muddy. Their marriage isn't quite what perhaps either of them expect. Over the years, they have three children. This is where we jump to the 1960s with Mark, Joy and Ruth, the perfect daughter who never gets belted. This is also the time when Mark turns 16 and leaves the farm and it's also the disappearance of Wendy Boscombe. So what happened with Wendy? Wendy is about three years younger than Joy, who at the time of the 1960s is 11-12. Wendy doesn't play a huge role in the book in that we, she goes to the same tiny primary school as Joy And on the last day of primary school, she waves goodbye. She's off to go to a holiday at the beach. Joy is just going to go and continue doing chores at the farm under her father's authoritarian rule. But when Wendy comes back from holidays, the day after Christmas, she suddenly disappears and she's Mm -hmm. never seen. There's a new policeman in town, Constable Alex Shepherd. He's constantly haunted by not being able to solve this crime. And he's still the town policeman in 1983. And he comes to the farm to see George. How does he find George's body? (laughs) 
Okay, this isn't a spoiler, although it might sound like it is. But George is dead. He's been dying, hence Joy has come back to look after him. There is a belt tied around his neck. This belt is quite a character in its own way. And I'm going to ask uh, Linyard to read from page three. It's very early on that we first meet this belt. So here's the description of the belt. It's just an ordinary, simple farmer's belt. But allow me to tell you what you can't see when you look at this belt. This belt is 35 years long and two children wide and old blood leaks out of every hole. Children's blood. Run your fingers down it and feel not leather, but pain. Hold it up to your nose and smell not leather, but fear. Bend it and hear not leather creaking, but children screaming. As Constable Shepherd would say, the answer is in the detail. And this is where the book moves from a crime novel to an intense novel of personal cruelty. We get George's treatment of Gwen. And once again, Lynn, from page 121, would you mind reading a little bit of that? George certainly worked hard. There was no doubt about that. And was a fervent Christian. In the last couple of weeks, he had joined two local committees and a local band as their guitarist. When she raised her eyebrows in surprise when he told her, he patted her hand and said, we have to become part of the community, dear. We have to do our bit. But when she said she might join the local crocheting group that a woman at church had mentioned, George's hand stopped patting hers as he thought for a second, screwed up his mouth and shook his head slowly. Do you really want to spend your valuable time crocheting? He said the word with such contempt. When you're struggling to get everything done here? Of course he was right. But she did miss the company of other woman, women, of her friends, even her great aunt. Well, she learns that if she just could get better at pleasing him, life would be fine. Now, Gwen has got talents. She uses her floristry skills to make some money on the side, but he generously allows her to buy face makeup. I think a lot of people will be familiar, unfortunately, with the idea that face makeup not just enhances someone's skin, but it can be used to cover bruises. Look, we're on the farm and uh, how to save money, of course, you can have chickens with eggs and go and skin rabbits and everything, but it's the eels then oh so we we actually learn how to kill clean and prepare an eel for a meal research or knowledge knowledge unfortunately and poor old Gwen in the novel she didn't really know how to make eel stew she just had the eels had to kill them clean them as you said so she just cooks them in a fry pan with onions, carrots. <laughs> These eels come from the dam, which is also the source of water lilies and snakes and also the depository of old farm equipment and pets. What did Father George make his daughter Joy do with the kitten? 
again. <laughs> One day, Joy brings home a kitten from primary school. Father, George, does not want the kitten. He puts it in a hessian bag and takes Joy over to the dam. And the kitten's squealing in the hessian bag. George makes Joy throw the kitten. So we're in the 1960s. Uh, Joy is only 11 years old. And a new, wealthy, educated family comes to town. Felicity becomes a friend of Joy's. And Joy sees a slice of family life she just couldn't believe. What made Felicity's family so different? Uh, the Felicities were gregarious and warm and funny and confident and loud and exuberant and generous also. So they welcomed Joy into their family and uh, dinners and birthday parties and, and, and the library that they had their books mm -hmm. that they shared with her, including Dr. Jeffrey and Mr. Hyde. And they were just warm, a warm, happy family. Joy was able to tell Felicity's mother about the way she experiences words. How does she see words? Joy has a rare form of synesthesia. So some people might be familiar with the most common form of it is that people, you're going to say, experience colours when they see letters and numbers and things like that. She experiences sees an image and it isn't necessarily an image that is of the word so if she sees the word elephant she doesn't necessarily get an image of an elephant she might get an image of a, a, an old brown book with pages that are falling apart or something like that it's an image that is conjured up in her head involuntarily she has no control over it. some of my favorites were demure a white handkerchief neatly pressed into small squares perfidious Fingers tinkling up and down the piano. Joy wrote down these images, but what happened to the book? She writes down her words and images that she loves and hates and, and she knows that she needs to keep this a secret from her family because they will not understand any of this. So she keeps the dictionary, as she calls it, hidden, but one day her father finds it. And not only does it have words like perfidious and demure, but it has words like God and hate and Bible, drowning and dams and death, and, and they all have very dark, strong images that are probably contradictory to the sorts of ideas that the father associates with words like God and heaven and hell and so on, and he finds the dictionary. And destroyed. I'm going to get, Linyo, to read another section out of her book and this is from page 317 and this is where Joy is reflecting back to the 1960s after a particularly bad beating. Things just got worse and worse and one day, the day before Wendy disappeared, I thought he was going to kill me. Then when she did disappear, all anyone could talk about was keeping children safe, protecting them from the monster but no one cared about what the monster called George Henderson was doing to his own children. In a close community, we see this happening. Now, the title of this book is The Silent Listener. I found so many silent listeners. There was Sergeant Shepherd, a good cop is a silent listener. Or is it Joy's mother? Was it Colin? Or 
Was it the embroidered tapestry with a religious message? And what did that religious message say? Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener of every conversation. Grew up with that hanging over her head. And I'm so glad that you've realised, and that it isn't just Joy who is kind of the silent listener. She does listen to conversations occasionally, knowing that she shouldn't. But, yes, there are all those other people, the local cop shepherd. Sometimes, as you said, her mother is the silent listener because she doesn't try to protect her children, and there are reasons for that. It's not as if she's a monster also. And, you know, and as you said, there's Colin, who is just very sympathetic towards other people's situations and is very happy to listen. Colin's role helps to reveal to readers some of the truths that have gone on in her. Some of the truths. Joy, the daughter, visits the undertaker and says, there's something I want put in the coffin. What is it? It's the belt. <laughs> Hold of the belt and chop it up into tiny pieces to try and purge herself of the memories and the pain and horror associated with that belt. The chopped up pieces of the belt must go in the coffin with her father. Never forgive and never forget. After 20 years, a small rural community hasn't solved the disappearance of a young girl. Can one man be a model citizen as well as a feared monster? The Silent Listener by Lynn Yard is so much more than just a crime novel. A ripper. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. This has been great. I do apologise about the quality of that book chat. Sometimes recording remotely is beyond our technical control and our know-how. And now it's David's turn. Who would have thought that there was murder and intrigue to be found behind a supermarket shelf but in his latest novel, The Devils You Know, Ben Sanders reveals that there is more to a can of soup than we realise. So, Ben, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled that you enjoyed the book so much. I want to start in a most unusual place. Rochelle, one of the minor characters. But what a treat she is. Give her space, Deborah. Energy requires space to flow. You must take delight in creating such characters. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring her up. I, I remember one piece of feedback from one of my wonderful editors at, at Ellen and Unwin was that, does Rochelle really have to be that annoying? But, I mean, it's, it's really what I love about her. I mean, the fact that in life you do sort of stub your toe on these slightly irritating people um, who kind of interject and... and interrupt the flow of, of normal interactions in the way that, that she does. And I, I just, I, I love the fact that, <laughs> that she is annoying because, yeah, yeah I mean, you, more often than, than is uh, perhaps deserved, you, you do come across those people in real life. So I, I had a lot of fun sort of um, venting, I suppose, by, by bringing her into the story. But this goes into then your creation of your main characters. So we have... Vincent, and he's damaged goods. Well, yeah, he is in a way. He's um, he's a pretty interesting bloke. He's he's had a career in what we assume is the CIA or some sort of shadowy covert government department. 
um, and as a result of that is, is carrying a lot of baggage. Um, but, you know, the, the upside of his career is that he's obviously acquired some, um, some pretty formidable skills along the way. And I think that, that combination makes him a, a, a pretty compelling bike, really. He's, um, he's got the capacity to sort of inflict a lot of damage. But, you know, obviously his, his conscience is, um, is highly operative and, and right at the forefront of whatever he's doing. And, and that sort of creates a, a constant tension for him throughout the book, which I, which I really like. He doesn't like carrying a gun. Yeah, exactly. When we meet him, he's obviously just come off the back of this pretty uh, energetic and um, an explosive career in a, in a rather literal sense. And and what he's wanting to do is really live a quiet life. In fact, that's his that's his edict that he's that he's planning to stick to. That he's going to live gun free. And of course, because he's in one of my novels, the the plot sort of twists and turns and it, and it quickly becomes apparent that maybe that's not the best option for him but certainly as the story starts out he's um looking to sort of err towards a more um, pacifist sort of lifestyle but he's then head of security for a supermarket mogul eugene lamar but before we get on to him we have the counter to vincent andre guterres who's basically a hitman without any scruples. As you pointed out, he's, a, he's a, an evil bloke and it, it was interesting to write about. I mean, um, the way I often structure my books is I, I move around characters a little bit. You know, I'll have a handful of key people and I, and I switch perspectives. And Andre has some kind of compelling charisma about him that I think makes him interesting to, to spend time with. Andre and Vincent are very similar in many ways. Well, they are. I mean, in, in terms of their faculties, I suppose, they both have this, you know, familiarity with and, and ability to use violence. And um, I suppose the, the thing about Andre is, as you say, he has no scruples. He's, um, you know, he's, he's absolutely prepared to do whatever it takes in, the, in his own interests, um, you know, and, and that means shooting someone if he has to, whereas, you know, Vincent's obviously you know, the opposite. He's anchored in many cases to inaction by his moral code and by his, his firm sense of ethics. And so, you know, whereas their physical capabilities are, are, might be quite closely aligned, morally they're in absolutely polar opposites of the spectrum. Um, but they've got the same know, yeah. set of skills because you have certain scenes where they're facing off with each other and they can stare each other down waiting for someone to back down yeah exactly and I, I think it makes quite a nice sort of tension throughout the book I mean the, the way I often structure th these things is, is quite simple you know I've, I've got an ostensibly good guy who in this case is Vincent and I've got a bad guy Andre Gutierrez and, and as you point out they kind of interact with each other in, a, in, in two or three key places throughout the book um, and, and what that creates is a, a sense that there's going to be some kind of ultimate confrontation. But I liked the sense, you know, throughout the book that, you know, they were interacting with each other and, and there was this potential for, for violence or uh, a fatal outcome. We have then uh, Andre working on behalf of a drug cartel, Vincent working for Eugene Lamar, as I said, a supermarket mogul. But it seems that $30 million worth of drugs have gone missing in a truck and the drugs are in fact in soup cans. And this 
fascinated me. What detail can you give us about those soup cans and where did you get your information from? Well, I'm glad you like the soup can angle. It sort of, um, it came about as a consequence really of how I, I write a story and that I don't plot anything and I don't plan anything. The story just really just comes along as I write it. I, I make it up as I'm going day by day. And, and the way it worked out is, I mean, you, you'll remember there's a scene early on in the book where Vincent's just learning the ropes of his new job and it turns out that there's a panic room in this house that he's meant to be protecting. Um, and this panic room in, includes cans of soup, you know, branded with the supermarket chain owned by his boss. And, you know, it was just a detail that occurred to me on the spur of the moment as I was writing that scene, you know, what are they going to have in here? And I thought, oh, maybe they've got some soup in case they're stuck in this panic room for a few days. But what transpired later later down the story as I was writing it is that, the, you know, these soup cans are actually integral to the process of drug smuggling, or at least as as far as um, as, as these guys are concerned, or, or the, the drug cartel is concerned anyway. And it occurred to me that you know, the, the cans being metal, potentially they're, um, there's some advantage in making them x-ray proof and they're obviously all sealed up, which makes them difficult to tamper with once they're out of the cannery. So <laughs> it turned into quite an interesting angle, I think, in the story. And as, as far as I'm aware, it's um, it's reasonably unique. I'm, I'm not aware of that sort of angle being used in a, in a novel before. But you go into the very physics of how the content moves within the can so that the drugs can be hidden. Yeah, well, um, I took a little bit of creative license. Actually, a, a structural engineer by training, and I've done a lot of seismic design of tanks and reservoirs. And I mean, not to bore the audience, but when you get when you have a tank full of water and an earthquake comes along, basically that the fluid slops around. Um, and I thought, well, I can apply those physical principles maybe to cans and drug smuggling. But you know, basically these guys have come up with a way you know, based on the fact that a fluid slops around, they're, they're looking at, you know, putting springs inside these soup cans to kind of cheat the physics or at least cheat the sensation um, that should be apparent when you, you know, shake a can full of fluids. So um, I've always thought that the, my engineering was useless in terms of fiction writing, but I, I have actually found an application for it in this book, which was great. I thought you had inside information, but running <laughs> parallel to this attempt to find the drugs, the missing drugs, and attempts to reclaim 30 million, is Lamar's daughter, Erin, who is a neoconservative, who's actually an advocate for the need for war in certain situations. And this provides an interesting element of tension between Vincent and Erin. Vincent, who's come back from war, Erin, who's advocating war, but it serves as a counterpoint to the actual fight going on between the drug cartel and the people who are wanting to get rid of drugs. Yeah, it does. I mean, the issue that I'm discussing throughout the story is the, you know, the moral status of, of war and, and the moral status of intervening in the affairs of, of other countries. And I suppose that, you know, that conversation is analogous to the, the central issue that they have in the book, you know, whether to intervene in a forceful manner, you know, in, in, the, with, in the events that are taking part in the plot. But I suppose really Erin as a character came about as a result of me wanting to have, you know, some tension between characters. I mean, the, the way that I, I develop character relationships is, you know, really through dialogue and through interaction. 
um, and by having this character of Aaron with you know views that are really quite opposed to Vincent's, they constantly have something you know really interesting to discuss. Um, you know, and so the dialogue and and sort of the differences of opinion between them, you know, built up really easily and and it was just a really nice way to kind of establish their relationship it, it was good fun to write but we as a reader would think nothing about dispatching someone like andre he's evil but then when you apply it to a political scenario would we as readers be as um accepting um are they one in the same uh, it's an interesting issue, I think, um, in, in a certain moral sense where, you know, people would be prepared to advocate for intervention forcefully um, in another country and, you know, they're prepared to accept, you know, a certain amount of collateral damage perhaps. But, you know, when that, that same ethical dilemma is shrunk down into personal terms, it potentially changes you know, people's understanding of it and, you know, and the level of, of human damage that they're prepared to consider acceptable. The benefit of, of stories is that it puts these sort of ethical dilemmas at personal, you know, small-scale terms that, you know, are perhaps more readily understood than they are if they're kind of on a, on a grand geopolitical scale and they're a bit more abstract and, and I suppose, you know, the damage is a bit, I suppose, meaningless to people, frankly. Well, the reader, if they want to find out if uh, the soup can be found or the $30 million, the extent of violence that they're prepared to accept, they can uh, look at the ethical dilemmas there and they can do so by reading Ben Sanders' latest novel, The Devils You Know, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Ben, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.